Hi, and welcome to the third episode of our Decarb Districts podcast, where we, in five episodes, explore different aspects of the green transition in the heating and cooling sector. My name is Susanne Tull, and in this third episode, we'll talk about how taking a system approach helps to decarbonize cities in the most optimal way. Our guests are Kaisareta Koskinen from the city of Helsinki and Susanna Padekopa, who is a PhD at Aalborg University. So in this whole discussion about how to decarbonize cities and how to decarbonize heating and cooling, one of the concepts that has been coming up more and more is this concept of taking a system approach or a holistic approach to decarbonization. Susanna, at Auburn University, you have been quite vocal on that and you yourself have published research on taking a system approach. Could you maybe start by explaining what system approach or holistic approach uh, exactly means and what the benefits are? Historically, when people say we need to decarbonize, you know, we want CO2 neutrality, we want to reduce fossil fuels, they then end up only focusing on electricity. So they talk about energy, but they mean power. And that doesn't do anything for the heating and cooling sector. When we look at the energy system, we need to look at electricity, of course, and transport, but also the built environment and heating and cooling. The advantage, I think, of taking a system approach when we do decarbonize these other sectors is that there are a lot of synergies that can be exploited and that can make it easier to decarbonize these systems. So talk about heating and cooling and district energy systems. Is it possible to use waste heat from some other industrial process or from fuel production? When we look at renewable electricity and heat pumps, is there a way to optimize those kind of systems? What are the impacts on the electricity grid if we have a district heating system when we start to electrify heating? What can we do with storages? These kind of ways of looking for solutions to decarbonize the system only really work if you have the perspective of the energy system as an integrated whole rather than as thinking of only the heating and cooling sector on the one part, the built environment in a separate part, and putting the power sector in a different box. That's a little bit what we talk about when we say that there should be a system approach and you should think about heating and cooling and decarbonization in an integrated way. It's really looking at the whole system together and being able to look at how they interact with each other to come to better solutions. Kaiserita, how does that work in practice? Because it sounds very good what Susanna is uh, saying, but I imagine that when you work underground in a city like Helsinki, there's also quite some challenges, like you have decisions for investments taken in by, by different people, like decisions on investments in buildings are mostly taken by the building owners, but then the decisions on the district energy infrastructure or the energy infrastructure in general are taken by maybe the local energy company or the municipality. How do you in, in Helsinki make sure that all of these different stakeholders are making the right decisions? So how do you bring them together to actually have a proper system approach? Somebody on the process needs to have that kind of overall understanding that what we really want. Somebody needs to keep the direction correct because you know there are as as you say there are uh, different actors and different uh, stakeholders and as a city we can only mandate different actors on certain amounts so we don't have that kind of overall ruling power over them but we have to make sure that all the actions they are doing they are doing on the same direction 
if, if for example, if the household owners uh, make their own decisions without any kind of guidance, it's not necessarily helpful. So somebody has to have that kind of big picture in mind all the time. In Helsinki, in practice, we did it by uh, starting from our goal. We want to be a carbon neutral by 2035. And we know that 56% of our emissions, they are coming from heating. And heating is uh, in practice here in Helsinki, district heating. So most of the buildings in Helsinki, they are connected to the district heating system. We realized that there are basically two ways today to reduce uh, district heating emissions. We can reduce emissions from the district heating production, and it's mainly that we have to give up burning coal and burning fossil fuels. And in the long run, we have to give up on burning anything. And and on the other hand, we also have to reduce the amount of the district heat we need in total. And these are basically the two big things we have to do. And and then we try to help all the stakeholders <laughs> to go on the same direction. So whatever they do, you know, we hope that they are reducing the, the amount of uh, district heat they need in their buildings, for example. And of course, you know, how to do this, we, we needed a lot of analysis and a lot of research and surveys to know how to make that happen. It's not that complicated, but somebody has to have the big picture in mind and to make sure that everybody is playing on the same direction. Do you have any concrete examples on how you engage stakeholders or how you, you know, if I can say so, push them into doing the right thing that you need them to do? Of course, you know, uh, the city of Helsinki owns a lot of building here in Helsinki and, and it's very easy just to make the system that, you know, we every time when we uh, build a new building, it needs to be very energy efficiency. Every time when we uh, renovate something, at the same time, we uh, make an energy, a deep energy renovation on that building. That kind of decisions, they are very uh, or quite easy to do. But when we start to speak about the privately owned apartment buildings, it's much more difficult. And uh, last year, we realized that actually we don't know what are the obstacles on, on energy efficiency renovations. And, and we really started to find that what is the bottleneck? What is the obstacle? Why? Because, you know, in Finland, it really makes economical sense to make those energy renovations. It was very very clear that the biggest obstacle is that energy renovations for the, the lay people, they are very complex. It's, it takes a lot of time to clarify everything. And it, you know, when you get the offers from the service providers, it's very difficult for normal people uh, to, to compare the, the, the prices and what, what is included and what is uh, not included. So it is just too complex and, and too difficult. And of course, you know, there are other, you know, that kind of, you know, other reasons for that, you know, for example, the market is is not ready to make that kind of offerings for for the normal people. And actually, I have this kind of, you know, funny story because I, I, I try to do it <laughs> on my own because our our building, we want to change to the geothermal. And, and I, I promised, you know, I will help on the process. And, and we received a three different uh, offerings and, and it was basically impossible for me to compare the offerings. And I have been working on the energy sector for more than 20 years. 
that that's probably give that kind of overview how how really complex it is. And so we decided that okay, that that is the main obstacle why why the energy renovations they do not happen. We are as a city, we are not able to give money to the to the apartment uh, companies, but we are able to give them free engineer power. So now we are about to start uh, energy renaissance uh, program. We are hiring uh, engineers to work for the city, and they will really go to to to, to the buildings and and the house owners and offering uh, free help through the process. And they will you know help you to ask uh, offerings for your renovation. And yeah, it's a it's a very tangible. Uh, example and um, I think it, it's great having someone going around in the city who who leads or who guides the, the people who want to renovate through this process and, and gives advice and um, and support. Uh, Susanna, I have just a, a maybe a little bit technical question for you because now we have been talking about energy efficiency in buildings, but I don't think that everyone understands why it is actually important to see both together the energy efficiency of buildings and the decarbonization of the district heating grid. So so why is it so important to see both together and, and, and tackle both at the same time? I mean, I think both separately are very important. We're at the point where we realize that just doing energy savings won't make the decarbonization of the heating system possible. Like we can't save away the heating sector. You know, we need to do something about the heat supply, but at the same time, everything is much easier if we can do energy renovations because by reducing the demand, we reduce the need to decarbonize the heat supply because there's less heat that needs to be supplied. You know, we can save about as much as we need to decarbonize just by doing the right level of energy savings. That helps a lot. That's really a significant change. If we look at the primary energy that you can take out of the system by doing renovations in terms of heating and cooling. Renovations are really where the gains are to be made. The second element that kind of brings this really interesting dynamic between renovations and heat supply is that typically when a building becomes more energy efficient, so if you improve the windows, if you improve the roof, if you improve the floors and the, the basements, you can heat this the building with a lower temperature supply. So it's a bit you know technical, but basically you don't need as hot water in order to make the building feel heated and to, to achieve the comfort level that people prefer. And what's nice about that is that it gives you more options in terms of the heat supply. If you think about something like geothermal, it's a lot easier to do it if you only need kind of 70, 80 degrees hot water than if you need something like 110 degrees hot water because the building is not very efficient and you need to provide hot water in order for people to feel comfortable. So it's both just a numbers game that you can prevent demand, but also that it opens doors for different kinds of supply. And especially for district heating, that's super interesting because when we see how district heating is going to develop as it becomes decarbonized, we're talking more and more about things like excess heat from energy, from industry, but also renewables like geothermal and like solar thermal. And those are much easier to, to achieve and much more effective if we can do them at low temperatures. So that interaction is really nice. I know that it is in many cases, there's this kind of perception from the utilities that renovations mean reduced demand, means reduced revenue, and then then you know they, they fear for the way that their business model works. But I think that there are also examples of where it goes well. I know here in Copenhagen, there are some areas where The district heating utilities, they offer a similar service as what you're describing, that they go and they knock on people's doors and they ask, you know, what do you have? What is the situation? How can we help? 
they typically do it in areas where in their network they see kind of pressure points or if they want to uh, free up capacity then they can use this as a tool to make their lives easier. It is possible to have these kind of synergies, especially if it's city-owned, then there's really an opportunity to work together between both the utility and the renovations. And Susanna, this process of aligning, yeah, or let's say that this process of doing a systematic energy or heat planning in the in the city, that also means there's quite some some analysis needed. Is academia here, your university, uh, doing anything to support cities in doing this and having this holistic energy planning? And are there maybe any tools or resources that they can use? Um, I have a colleague who did a bit of an inventory on how cities do energy planning. And in a lot of cases, it's not so much the case that there's an energy person or a heat person who is sitting there spending their whole day being able to think about how to achieve this. For a lot of cities, it's a kind of side job or it's something that people do as part of a different role. That's the first challenge. And that's also where, as academia, we can provide support. Energy planning, but especially heat planning, is really a complex interface between being able to do the technical details, but also talking to developers, talking to legal frameworks, looking at how the business models are set up. So the way that we can support cities is very different because not all cities have a heat person sitting there. Like the, the idea of helping planners is very diverse. About the tools and the resources, it's difficult for cities and it's difficult for heating and cooling because it's very local. When we talk about you know, the national power grid, then there's a grid. But when we talk about cities, it's all very different and it's all very specific. On the other hand, municipalities have a lot of agency when it comes to heating because it is local. One of the difficult things for cities, especially if you don't already have a utility like Helsinki does, is to find data. Likelihood is that there is little data because it's individually owned buildings and there's not always a cadaster. And then how are people heating their homes? Those kind of things. There are always difficulties there. And what we as academia can do quite well is try and provide kind of data and tools and methodologies for this. Also for finding proxy data initially before kind of feasibility stage to help cities understand what the options are and what the possibilities are. Because I don't think it's always clear for cities what they can do. And especially when we talk about district energy, if you go to countries where it's not really known as a solution and where it doesn't already exist, then having the kind of the methodologies and the tools to be able to assess if district heating is an option is really important. What we've done at Olbor and what I've been doing the past few years is kind of trying to create country level models to look at what the options are for district heating. In Heat Roadmap Europe, we were funded by the European Commission uh, as a European project to really generate data sets on what the local, the spatial situation is, and then what that means for the energy system. From that, we can start having a conversation on what is the level of renovations that we should be aiming for, and what is the level of district heating that we, sh we should be aiming for? Uh, how is that district heating supplied? And doesn't necessarily contribute to making a local decision. We're not telling a city, you know, you should build a power plant here and the power plant should be based on biomass. In addition to that, you should have a large scale storage here and you should connect it to a solar district heating plant. That's not the kind of level of detail that we're talking about. But what we're doing is we're giving options that then allows a city to make a decision on whether or not to further investigate that.
where I think academia has a particular role is that we can help cities assess those kind of processes in a way. We can help them understand what is being proposed by different technical solutions. Yeah, and I think that uh, what you're saying makes uh, totally sense because it is also almost a, or maybe it is a, a scientific task here for, for a city to do this kind of very in-depth in energy planning. It's a, a lot about collecting the right data, assessing that data. And first after that, I mean, you are in a position where you really can make a plan and think about um, how to, or, or what, what targets to set, how to involve uh, stakeholders uh, and so on. Kaiserita, I was just, when Susanna was talking, I was thinking, this is what academia is also doing to support cities across Europe or even outside of, of Europe. For example, this heat roadmap uh, Europe that, that comes with some tools that cities can use. But you in Helsinki, you are already very successful in doing this kind of heat planning and, and having a system approach to decarbonizing heating and cooling. Are you also doing anything to share your Helsinki experience with other cities or to support other cities in, in their journey to carbon neutrality? Yes, we, we think the, the city of Helsinki is not very big. But we want to be bigger than our size is. So, uh, you know, we are not only focusing on our carbon footprint, but we are also focusing on our carbon handprint. And, and for example, at the moment, we are running the competition called Helsinki Energy Challenge. And it's about how to uh, decarbonize our district heat production without burning biomass. And we have a committee to share all the proposals with everybody because we think that there might be proposals which are not usable for us, but they could be very helpful for somebody else. All what we are doing here in Helsinki, we have that kind of a public tool, Climate Watch, and everybody can go there and, and, and see what we are doing and, and how we are managing to reduce our uh, carbon emissions. There is a, a small barrier, which is the Finnish language, but, but at least the, the cities in Finland, they can take advantages of, of that. This local energy planning, as we said now, it's something that is happening on a local level. It's happening in the city or the municipality or maybe sometimes on a, on a regional level. But in general, energy and climate policies and targets, they are to a large extent shaped at the national or at the EU level. So if, if you could tell now the EU or the, the Finnish government what they should do in their national or EU policy to better enable or support a system approach in local energy planning, is there anything that they can, can do to support? I, I think it's it's very important also on EU and in national level to understand the big picture, that what, what is the goal, where we are aiming to target And, and all the directions what the EU or the Finnish government, they are doing, they should support actions on that direction. This is my very my personal opinion, but I think that at the moment it's very easy to do that kind of very small mechanical interventions on different things without thinking what are the consequences. So, for example, you can, you know, add tax there or you can add, you know, some support, finance on, on the other part of the system. But if you don't understand the big picture and how the system works, normally it's not very helpful. It could even be harmful. 
In Finland, we have a national law. Burning coal is forbidden after uh, 2029, but there are no policy over uh, biomass. So it's it's a very easy step for the energy companies to step to the biomass burning processes. And if we want to avoid that, you should have that kind of you know comprehensive policy on place from the beginning. So you really have to understand the big big system and and you know how different uh, actions affect the big thing. I can only agree with that. For the national level, especially the idea of having a direction of where to go and a vision for what needs to happen is super important because something like you mentioned with the coal and the biomass is also something that we've seen in Denmark. Part of that is that there is no there's an easy option for the energy companies and it's it's kind of short term solution. The European level, you know, there's still no real clarity. I think that the idea that we should have a vision of where to go and what is what is the direction that we want to go is something that's really important for the national government. Yeah, and I also would like to highlight the importance of understanding the scale. We are saying that we want to be carbon neutral five years earlier or 20 years earlier, but nobody really calculates what does it take. We are saying that we have to, for example, the cuts heat demand by a 30% and we have a 15 years And this is just an example. But, you know, if you have uh, 15 years and you want to cut to 30% of the district heat consumption, you cannot make that kind of uh, decision that you are going to cut half a percent per year because the math is not correct. If you want to make a big steps, you have to make the decisions with R in relation to what you want to achieve. Mm. It's difficult because these transition processes aren't very linear, right? Like it doesn't make sense to say 30% in 15 years, so percent every year. Renovations take a long time, but especially when we talk about decarbonization of the supply, then it's it's long-term processes. If you put in a gas boiler in Europe now, then it'll probably still be there in 15 years. That's 2050, that's 2035, that's past the, the 2030 targets. There, there needs to be a bit more interaction between the targets that we set in the long run and then what happens in the inter- intermediary. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the biggest challenge on this heating side is to make uh, energy renovations a new sexy. Because it is exactly what you say, that it's it's not very interesting. You know, the, the journalists, they are not interested about the energy renovations. They are interested about the innovations and uh, digi- digital stuff. But actually what we need, we need a more insulations. We need a more heat recovery uh, on, on the buildings. It is that kind of very old-fashioned engineering, uh, renovation, building kind of stuff. And and that's how we are going to fight the climate change. It was such an interesting conversation with the two of you. So thank you so much for joining. And thanks to everyone listening. If you want to learn more about sustainable heating and cooling and taking a system approach in energy planning, you can follow the links in the episode description. And I invite you also to listen to the rest of the episodes of our Decarb Districts podcast. In the next episode, we talk about digitalization in the heating and cooling sector and how new smart solutions can facilitate decarbonization and sector integration.